if you have to be isolated, probably better to be isolated in the city of Rome, which is like an outdoor museum, than to be isolated in, I don't know, Duluth. This is not uh, to cast aspersions on Duluth. It's just that Rome has so much to offer, even if you're looking at it from the outside. And it is incredibly evocative. And scholars talk about the forum or a contemporary artist can look at a mosaic in, in Foro Italico and talk about the history of mosaics or talk about the history of Mussolini in Italy. Really, the scholars and artists span the range from the ancient world to very contemporary issues like immigration or installation art. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the Home and Design Director at Departures Magazine. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today isn't a person, but an institution at the intersection of art, design, and culture at the highest level, the American Academy in Rome. Today, and for more than 100 years, the American Academy in Rome has been a place where artists, scholars, architects, and poets from the United States can live, study, and work in the Eternal City. Recipients of the Academy's biggest program, the Rome Prize, which includes fellows, residents, and visiting artists and scholars, are given a place to live, meals from a sustainable food program overseen by Alice Waters of Chez Panisse, and get to rub elbows with the best and brightest in one of the most romantic cities known to man. What makes the Rome Prize so special to me is this incredibly rare chance for the arts and humanities to mix freely and with few conditions, where a painter can exchange ideas with an architect, or a historian can share a bottle of wine with a poet. To better understand the impact such an experience has on an artist today, I met with 2017 Rome Prize Fellow and interdisciplinary artist Sanford Biggers. The sculptures, installations, and multimedia pieces of this New York-based talent explore issues of identity heavily informed by African-American history and traditions. But first, to appreciate the American Academy and its mythical stature in the world of creativity, I spoke with President and CEO Mark Robbins. As the former head of the School of Architecture at Syracuse University and former executive director of the International Center of Photography in New York and a former Rome Prize winner himself, I knew he could share a bit of his wisdom on what makes this incredible place tick. I caught up with Mark from his New York apartment. To someone who's completely uninitiated, how do you describe what is the American Academy of Rome and and its mission? So the American Academy in Rome is an institution that supports artists and scholars. We've been around for uh, close to 130 years. And the academy was founded on the understanding that Rome had lessons that would be valuable for culture going forward. This isn't a new idea. For thousands of years, people have mined Rome for ideas about culture, civilization, architecture, and art. And early on, the people who won the Rome Prize, which is the competition that people apply for to get to the academy, to live there for a year or six months, most of the people early on went to study Rome in specific as architects or as classicists. And since 1894, since the the beginning of the Academy, this has grown, and we now have composers 
landscape architects and poets, writers of all sorts, as well as people in ancient studies, art historians looking at the Renaissance or historians looking at modern Italian studies or medieval studies. It is one of the unique institutions that supports the independent work of artists and scholars in this country, and it is increasingly a global place in Rome in which we invite Italian scholars or an artist coming from Syria. And so there's always this amazing conversation at the table. So I guess in short form, it's not a school and it's not a museum, though it has aspects of both of these kinds of institutions. It's really about the support of uh, some of America's most talented scholars and artists uh, in a way that is unique in this country. It's literally a, a modern-day grand tour, essentially. Yes. Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, the Academy really is founded in in the really la- late stages of the grand tour. By the 1890s, artists from the U.S. are going as much to France to look at the new artistic and architectural trends. People like Rodin were just on that edge between you know, figurative statuary and more abstract work. And there was a very conscious decision to place the American Academy in Rome, which had to do with tying American culture to a certain legacy of uh, Roman classicism or neoclassicism, much in the same way that Washington, D.C. is modeled after Roman architecture, you know, represents empire. And there are many things that the Academy is known for, the Rome Prize being obviously the number one thing. Can you describe a little bit about what the Rome Prize is and, you know, how people apply it and and for those who become selected, what that means for them? Sure. Each year we run a competition, which is the Rome Prize competition. We get about a thousand applications, and these cover the 11 areas of study or disciplines that uh, people pursue at the academy. This can be in the arts or in the humanities. And we choose between 30 and 35 people to come to the academy for anywhere from six months to a year. About four or five of these, uh, the people who come are, are grad students who are finishing up their PhDs and they're doing work most specifically in Rome or in the broader Mediterranean where being in Rome is very, very helpful. And the others are later stage academics and professors who are doing independent projects. And then you have composers and visual artists, filmmakers and photographers, landscape architects who are coming to take a break from their professional lives in in New York or in Chicago or in, in LA, and coming to a place where they can rediscover their own work with the backdrop of Rome, which is always a, an intense and very specific reminder of history. So when people come to the Academy, unlike the Guggenheim Award, where you're given some funds and you just go on your own and do a project. This is a residential fellowship, and the community has as much impact on the individual artist or scholar as their individual work on their projects does, and joined by the city of Rome. So there are really three aspects of 
of this fellowship, which are central. It's the project you come to the academy with, and you have the time and the space to work on this, and you propose that. And so you're selected on the basis, in part, on your proposal, and also on the quality of the work and the promise of the work going forward to make a difference, not just for you as an individual, but to really rethink your area of study or or creative work. And each one of the fellows commits to this residential community and members of the community take their meals together throughout the year. So we take lunch and dinner together. When it's warm enough, we're outdoors in a in a courtyard, these beautiful long tables, and there's a, always a vibrant conversation. People go back to work after dinner. Everyone knows that they are there centrally to do their work, but to be able to sit at a table with others who are either struggling to get that paragraph done or struggling to get that music composition done or finishing a chapter in a book, it's very satisfying to be able to say, I either had a great day in the studio, I want to share that with you, or I'm having a hell of a time and do you have any suggestions? You know, or do you just want to hear about my my horror of a day? And tell me, well, going back to the Rome Prize for a second, what what qualities do you look for in someone that applies? Like, what makes a Rome Prize recipient a success after they've completed their time there? It's a good question. I, I think what we look for the process is two parts. The first part we review people's CVs. If they're uh, applying as a scholar or writer, we look through manuscripts. If they're applying as a visual artist, uh, painter or sculptor, installation artist, we look at their portfolios. And so all of that needs to be just phenomenal, and it needs to show great promise and achievement. But the most important thing, and this is what we really try to discover in the face-to-face interviews, and even when we did this in Zoom, last year, it's to see who is intellectually generous enough to share their work, but also be interested in in the work of others. So there needs to be an intellectual curiosity. You know, oh, that sounds great. Why are you doing that? Explain it to me. Or, hmm, that doesn't make sense. Or that links with something that I'm looking at as a landscape architect, do you think there's a relationship between what you're looking at in poetry and what I'm looking at 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 landscape architecture in terms of the sublime, for instance? And the Rome Prize is one of those rare places where there are many disciplines involved, but architecture and design is sort of at the core of it all. Now it's sort of this like mix where design and architecture feature heavily, whereas normally in an arts context, design is an afterthought. Why do you think this kind of unique mix is important today of linking something like poetry and literature and the classics with architecture and design and it's it's also you know i i tend to think about the academy representing fully the mix of all of these disciplines and the mix that you talk about is actually great and and if if we just isolate design and architecture or landscape architecture for that matter which is often not included with the other arts or you know, they're often called the applied arts, so they're not put together with fine artists or what used to be called fine artists. But if we if we think about what artists probe really represents 
what they're thinking about the world and reflects their own viewpoint to broader audiences, you know, and hopefully leaves a record of who we are as a culture at a given point. It's very much what design and architecture and landscape architecture do. Uh, And the degree that as designers, we understand the culture in which we're working and also understand that our gestures, the building we make, the, the furniture we design, the landscape, the public space we make has an impact on that culture going forward is very, very important. So the more robust the conversation is, um, some people would say it's abstract. You're like, yes, we actually need to know how to make buildings that shelter us and keep the sun out when they need to and keep the elements out. All of that's quite basic. And it is not enough to just do that, right? So it's it is about housing, but it is also about how you affect people's lives by the kinds of spaces that you make for them inside and out. And artists think about this in very, very immediate ways. You know, there are these great conversations between Richard Serra and Peter Eisenman talking about the relationship between art and architecture. And, you know, architecture is always thought about as work just for a client, or therefore it has certain rules and regulations, whereas art is something that exists really on its own terms and responds only to the, the needs or the energies of the person that's, that's making it. And those are probably restricted definitions on both sides, that I think the architect that is working well has absorbed really complex notions about culture. And that's what comes out. You know, it is hard to imitate Frank Gehry because Frank Gehry is the only one who does what he does. His work as an architect responds to the site in which he's making it, but in an unexpected way that changes our understanding of the way that building works or the way an orchestra hall might relate to the rest of the community or to the gardens around it. I mean, that's very a very powerful kind of gesture. There are a few buildings that serve the academy, but one of the most amazing is the Villa Aurelia. Can you tell me a little bit about this incredible building from 1650? So the villa dates from the 1600s, and it's actually next to the academy's main property, where there's the 1914 building by McKinney White, which was purpose-built for the academy. Before that building existed, the villa had been used to house uh, people from the academy when it was much smaller, and there were other spaces that were rented in and around Italy. So the Villa Aurelia has a close link with the academy. It was then donated to the academy and has become a place where the directors used to live, where there were classes. We continue to have concerts there. It was renovated substantially, as was the bulk of the campus, by Adele Chatfield-Taylor, who was really a, a fundamentally important president of the academy who preceded me, whose training was as a preservationist. 
And working with Christina Pugliese, who's also a preservationist from Colombia, they labored really for about 25 years to make sure the gardens and the buildings were all brought back to an incredible quality that was not like a stage set so that it could accommodate the the activities that we have as a contemporary arts and culture institution, but that retained the most important historic characteristics of the buildings and the grounds. So when you come to the academy, it is stunningly beautiful. It is remarkable. And it is really part of our legacy. And to see contemporary scholars and artists work within what is a sylvan setting is kind of miraculous because they're all working very, very hard. The composers are in their studios for 16 hours a day, working very hard. And this is probably one of the only times that an artist or a scholar will be able to live in a place which is so beautiful and so well cared for, in which they'll be fed so well and nurtured just so that they can produce the best work possible. I mean, that's why the place is so powerful. So the beauty of the setting is really part of this gift of time and space. And how does someone like yourself become uh, president of the Academy? What was that journey like? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I was a fellow myself at the Academy about 25 years ago. And I think if you told me when I was in my studio doing artwork and installation work that I would be the president, I would have been very surprised. So um, it's not, one doesn't go to school to learn how to become the director of the academy. Uh, But I did direct a museum. I was a dean of a school of architecture. I was an artist uh, working on my own. And there was this hybrid nature of the academy that I found very, very attractive, that it was really a place that encouraged ideas and the development idea of ideas and a, a place that was really at the kind of forefront of creativity and scholarly work. This seemed very attractive to me, and I was just lucky enough that the board members that selected me uh, agreed. And so I was at ICP as the director at that, uh, immediately before I was at the academy, and it was just too hard an offer to resist. And what was it like as a as a young man when you were when you were spending time at the American Academy of Rome? Like, what was what do you remember from that time? You know, I have done other fellowships, and I was a faculty member. And again, it, it has links the academy to university life, you have colleagues, you can discuss things with colleagues. But unlike a a university where you're generally a member of a specific department, I was in architecture as a a young faculty member and then was a professor for about 20 years. Being at the academy is a little bit like a Noah's Ark. So there are two composers and two architects and two (laughs) landscape architects. And you're not, neither competing for tenure or with your colleagues. And so there is just this genuine interest in explaining what project you're working on at the academy 
and having other people uh, explain what they're doing. It is one of the places of freest interchange. So, you know, I remember becoming good friends with Walter Hood, who's a landscape architect, fantastic landscape architect. And we went uh, traveling through Rome, and I loved the Baroque, and he thought the Baroque was overdone, which it is, which is part of its being incredible. And I could show him the things that excited me about Borromini or Bernini or Baroque city plans. And then he took me to Barcelona to meet Spanish uh, landscape architects. And then we went around and saw a series of landscape projects, which were absolutely cutting edge then. And so there was a way in which we both enjoyed what each each other were doing, and we're so happy to to share that. I mean that this happened in extended ways. I mean Walter and I are still friends, but even when you're working very late at night in the studio, you could just look back at the building and see in which studios there were were windows on. It's a little bit like the Hollywood Squares, right? You could <laughs> read, oh somebody's awake and you could call them up and say, do you want to come down for a glass of wine? Or would you come down and look at what I've just made in studio? I'd like to talk about it. Or, you know, uh, other people who were night owls, this fantastic writer named Randall Keenan, we'd run into each other just by chance and have great conversations about what he was writing or the kinds of things that we were both thinking about being in Rome in the late 90s. Artist Sanford Biggers is a talent for our time. His works help viewers understand and appreciate layers of society and history in ways that delight and inspire. And it's not hard to understand why he was chosen for the Rome Prize. His recent traveling show, called Code Switch, opened at the Bronx Museum in 2020 to rave reviews. It's a survey of his radical artworks from the past decade that use pre-1900 quilts with all of the layers of meaning they entail for the Black community. And his recent major installation, called Oracle, which we'll speak about, was up at Rockefeller Center this spring and ties directly to the artist's studies in Rome. Well, I think it started when I was in junior high school, honestly. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, and in the early 80s, um, I sort of caught the bug of uh, rap culture as it was starting. It was in this nascent form before it became hip-hop culture. In that moment, there was this influx of all these cultural offshoots from the movement. So you had breakdancing, obviously, rapping, DJing, and graffiti. So I did a little bit of all of them, uh, less rapping, but more of the other three. And graffiti was one of the things I was doing. So I was you know, sneaking out at night, doing graffiti in the train yards and tagging and doing murals with friends. And uh, at one point I had a run in with the cops and they essentially put the fear of God in me. And uh, soon after I was put into the advanced placement art classes in my high school. So, you know, this is over the span of probably four years or so. So at that point, I started to uh, work in oil. And, you know, prior to that, I was, you know, very engaged in all the art projects I was doing up until that point, you know, all the different, you know, collages and painting uh, lessons that they had. So it was a natural transition, but, you know, I've always had an inclination to make things with my hand and hands and to create artworks. You said that you were once driven to create and mix things together, like kind of like a mania. Like, where do you, where do you think this sort of drive originates in you? I think I was very fortunate as a child to have 
so many different influences or exposure to so many different things. I lived in a largely black neighborhood, but I went to a white public school. And I, I took my first trip abroad when I was probably 13, and I remembered a great deal of it and my exposure to, you know, the West Indian population there and the working class um, folks um, through Birmingham and how they would get together and throw these parties and create different types of music like ska and reggae and all these influences were happening. And then I find a reggae station in Los Angeles when I return on Sunday nights. So I'm still hearing that music while still living in a neighborhood where no one's listening to it. Mm-hmm. And then going to a school where, you know, people are still listening, you know, to Led Zeppelin <laughs> and <laughs> Death Leopard. Um, and all of that is happening at once. So I'm getting, you know, this very elite private school education on one side and I'm learning about hip hop on the side, you know, and rap music on this other side. So, you know, I think my work is indicative of those cross currents. As someone who's traveled so extensively and been inspired by so many different places, is there something about your work that you think, uh, you know, is uniquely American or is that something that you feel puts you in a box? Well, I think a little bit of both sometimes, honestly. Um, I think there is something very distinctly American. Um, I think it's, you know, the sort of um, unapologetic use of the found object. I think that has a very American flavor to it. Um, the sort of nostalgia, the material nostalgia of a quilt, an American quilt is very specific. Um, although, you know, the world makes tapestries of all kinds, but American quilts do have a certain aesthetic that you don't find everywhere. I think um, the embedding of various political and social ideas into highly aesthetic work, I think rings very American. I don't think I make art merely for art's sake. I think there can be a way it's looked at that way, but I think there's always, you know, subtext under each of the pieces that I make. I think that's also a very American approach. And, you know, uh, the, the sense of responsibility as an American artist that I feel to do that. And I do that because I just think that the American audience, without some of us, you know, artists that are putting that information out there, may overlook it. I think we're at a time where we're seeing a lot of stories that have been around for millennia that no one has talked about in the US. And we're at a, an awakening moment when that approach is making sense. So I do feel that that is very American and it could put you in a box from time to time. But I think I've also been pushing the idea of all of my sites going deeper and deeper into very traditional issues, uh, you know, form, function, aesthetics. And in that way, it can transcend even beyond some of those uh, subtexts in the work. And while all of your pieces have different meanings and inspirations, how would you describe in your own words a sort of common thread to your work, you know, if, if someone was were to look at your portfolio as a whole? Well, I think there's a few common threads in all the work. Uh, one is, and I think probably one of the larger ones, is an idea of cultural syncretism. And um, I spent a lot of time living in various countries, obviously um, Italy being one of them, but other places throughout Europe and throughout South America, Asia, and so on. And I was always struck by things that I found similar between all those cultures, uh, particularly in terms of early art forms, use of materials, and so on. And I wanted to build a vocabulary and a language using some of those techniques to explore issues that I thought were very specific to America, but then would gradually sort of fan out to ideas of the African diaspora and just sort of cross-cultural syncretism at large. So I think that's one of the themes that you'll find in the work. I think history is also a very important part, whether it be European or uh, United States history, um, various regions throughout Africa, um, through Brazil, and so on, and finding 
interesting anecdotes or lesser known aspects of those histories and putting them together in, dare I say, <laughs> seductive or visually appealing or engaging artworks that once you scratch past that surface, you start to get these deeper lessons and and um, stories. And I think another thing is um, using either found materials or already referenced iconography. So, um, for example, I've been working on a series of quilts that I call the Codex series, where I've been doing paintings on um, ant antique pre-used quilts from the U.S. and even some fabric from Japan as well. But also in uh, another series I've been working on called the Chimera series, where I've been doing marble sculptures that are hybridized versions of Greco-Roman and neo-classical um, pieces mixed with um, items that are found, you know, traditionally throughout Africa and various regions. This is all imagery that I think people have had some experience with, but these new juxtapositions of them create new meanings. And, you know, you were quite established when you uh, applied for the Rome Prize that you were awarded in, in 2017. What made you think to do this? Actually, I spent a great deal of my career developing ideas and works and researching by doing residencies. So I was very aware of the American Academy from probably, you know, 15, maybe even 20 years ago. I knew of it as a student. I knew of it during my first time living in Florence when I was uh, 20, 21 years old. And throughout the decades, I'd had various mentors and colleagues, professors and so on who were like, you know what, you'd be really great for this residency. And I was like, oh, I would love to do it, but now is not the time. And then I even applied a couple of times and did not get it. So um, it had always been on my radar just because of the great things I heard about it and a desire to turn return to Italy because that was a, an extremely fertile moment for me as a creator and as a young artist. And some of the issues that were happening, I think, in America, I thought Rome would be the best place to explore where those things come from, because we in some ways are repeating ourselves in many ways politically. Um, and I think, you know, the history of Rome is you know, centuries of repetition, resurrection and ruination from various political forces. Did you see did you see the Trump years as sort of like uh, as many people did um, this sort of uh, feeling like Rome before the fall or absolutely Nero fiddling while yeah, while the city burns, while the city burns. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, if we didn't learn anything from <laughs> the previous falls of empire, it takes time. It doesn't just happen in four years. It happens over decades. But there's moments when you can see the decline, you know, that that sort of stimulate that decline. And I think that might have been a moment where you start to realize that things weren't as sacrosanct as we believed them to be. But I wouldn't blame everything on that moment. I think there was a lot that led up to it. That was just, you know, taking a Band-Aid off of uh, America's pathology, if you will. And, you know, when you, what was it like to work there? I mean, what was it like, what was your sort of daily life when you were working, you know, in Rome, you know, at, at the campus there? Um, I, before moving to Rome, had my first child and she was with us, um, you know, after, you know, two weeks, um, after being born, we all moved as a family to Rome. So my routine was partly, you know, being a, a new father and spending time with the baby and then immediately going and having lunch with, uh, you know, my cohort there. And then lots of hours in the studio and lots of conversations <laughs> over mm -hmm. uh, after TV around town with various, you know, scholars and colleagues talking about ideas, you know, history, largely um, objects, um, taking the tours, uh, the guided tours from the academy. 
and then putting those ideas to work in the studio and sometimes spending very, very late nights in the studio and then walking over, sleeping and starting over again. When it comes to like the, when you mentioned that you were, were able to sort of speak to people about history and things like that, what did you kind of learn or what did you, how are you influenced by the sort of the unique mix of people when, you know, someone wins their own prize and is working there amongst other artists or scholars from other kinds of fields that might be completely tangential to your own? Well, you know, being interested in syncretism, my approach with all those conversations was to see, well, there must be some aspect of your field of research that overlaps with mine. And what I ended up finding out, I think if I could sum up a few things, one that really rings out to me was looking at objects in antiquity and how we, how I first learned about them as sort of these autonomous, super important objects, and then realizing that a lot of them were reproductions and that this practice of reproducing some of these classics obviously has gone on for thousands of years. So even the objects that I would see um, in any of the museums in Rome, but also, you know, it, whether it be at the Met or um, Borghese or in Paris or Vienna, that those objects usually weren't the original. And that sort of sends me back into the mindset of rap music and hip hop production and how people are riffing and making variations on themes forever. So I felt like history was malleable in a way, and it was open source. I know the phrase says that history is written by the, the victors or the winners, but at some point, I think history is also open source. And I think we are at a moment where everyone's trying to figure out how to control and manipulate those narratives. Um, so on an artistic level, I feel that, you know, the Chimera series that I started developing while I was at Rome started from that, that approach. And that sculpture work, which is also where you mentioned the Chimera series, how did that initially start? Cause I know that you had, uh, I think your Rome prize submission had included this idea of, you know, scanning a 3D, 3D technology. Can you tell me what a little bit about what your proposal was at the time? Yeah, it was, um, I, I really, you know, I was inter interested in the fall of empire and how that could be tracked through objects. Um, I was also interested in the idea of spolia and how different, um, landmarks throughout Rome were actually made from the detritus or the ruins of previous landmarks. And once again, sampling history to create new uh, forms. So that was, um, I guess, the jumping off point of some of it. But I think two things happened when I was there. Uh, the first scan that I did was actually of a quilt. And I wanted to reproduce that in marble because one of mm -hmm. the you know tropes of marble sculpture is to render cloth and materials that are not stone to show your ability at transcending the stone itself. Um, so that was one of the first things I did. And in that process, I was talking to a friend who was just joking with me. He's like, are you seeing any black people out there? I bet you there are none. And I had <laughs> to laugh. I was like, are you kidding me? There's black folks here before we even had them in the US, obviously. And once again, that sort of got me back into that mindset of syncretism and the cross-cultural currents that had been in Rome for thousands and thousands of years. But I'd never seen any African objects rendered in stone. I've seen them in, in bronze and wood and gold and you name it, but never in stone. And that started me down that route of, okay, well, let's reproduce one in stone and see what happens. And then what happens when you combine them? Because if I'm just doing this head from over here and I'm seeing all these, you know, bodies, missing limbs and heads right outside of my studio, what happens when you start to put those together and what stories are told? 
um, you know, there was a lot of those micro conversations going in my mind and that got me along the, the, the path of making the Chimera series. Your installation called Oracle that was in New York this spring was quite incredible. For those listening who perhaps didn't see it, can you describe this work to them? Sure. The Oracle is a monolithic sculpture that is the composition is basically a hybrid of the body of Zeus that was rumored to be the the, um, actual body of Zeus that was earliest large monumental sculptures of record. But there are obviously no pictures. There's only drawings and descriptions of it in text. So that gives me the body and the throne of the Oracle figure. But the rest of the head and the back of the head and the braids and all the other articulation are a composite of different regions and different cultures throughout Africa. What you see, it looks like a monolithic figure that is just basically looking very solemn and mysterious over you. It stands around 30 feet tall. It has a torch in one hand. So that, you know, sort of references the Statue of Liberty, but it also statues oracles in antiquity as a place where people would gather to ask the oracle for advice or wisdom. And oracles typically would give utterances that are usually vague and somewhat abstract so that the viewer, or sorry, that the person who asked the question would then have to decipher that and figure out their fate through that. And um, I think it really worked out with the timing of this uh, piece being unveiled in the spring where people were starting to come out of their houses a bit more after you know long quarantine and sheltering in place for so long. And lots of people have questions. Lots of people have questions and need some direction. And I wanted this to sort of act as an oracle did in antiquity to make it a place that people would journey to, to contemplate. And did you, did you ever ask the oracle for some advice? And what would you think it it would say? You know, I still ask the oracle for advice. (laughs) Uh, The funny thing was there was an online component that literally people could ask the oracle questions and receive answers from the oracle. And the oracle was voiced online by uh, the singer-songwriter, brilliant performer, Michelle Indegio Cello. And you never saw her face. You only heard her voice. But anyone who's familiar with her music would not mistake her voice for anyone else's. And she has the gift of responding and um, speaking in koans and riddles and poetically vague statements. So people were able to ask her directly or they can type in a question and she would respond to it um, the few hours per week that she was, um, that she voiced the Oracle. You cannot reach the Oracle at any given time. Oracles throughout history were never there at people's available, you know, when people wanted them to be, they showed up when they could or when they wanted to, (laughs) and which might be as few as five times a year. Um, in some of the documents I've read. So, uh, we also held to that. So it was sort of ambiguous when the Oracle would be able to respond to you, but ultimately the Oracle would respond. And are, you know, thinking about technologies and that we, we mentioned before and how this sort of process of scanning and things like that and sort of a, a current <laughs> an omnipresent theme, no matter where we go and no matter what we do. Have you thought about how you might want to use technology moving forward in your own work? Well, yeah, I mean, I've always been experimenting with it. Um, you know, obviously I talked about three dimensional scanning and, you know, as we're talking about the Oracle, which is you know, a piece out of antiquity. It's representing antiquity. It's made in bronze like antiquity. And it's an oracle where people can come and ask questions. But the other side of that is I'm using streaming technology and um, uh, our QR codes and digital phone, you know, uh, cyberspace and all these other very, very of the moment technologies to create ancillary, you know, or, or auxiliary programming for those 
you know, um, analog objects. And to me, it's less about looking at technology as, oh, this is the future and this is so important that I use it. I actually try to be an early adapter of all of them and just use them as tools. They're just the new scissors and the new hammer, the new pair of scissors and the new hammer. Um, so, and I think I've had that approach, you know, forever. I mean, we started this conversation talking about, you know, Sony recorders and how that ends up becoming a sampler and a drum machine. And now people have that on their phones. Um, and I've watched and used all of those technologies over the years. So to me, it's just another tool, but I like to have a finger on the, or hand, those tools in my hands from time to time. If you had to give a, a piece of advice to someone who had just won the Rome prize and they're packing their bags to go to Rome for them to get the most out of their time there, what would that piece of advice be? Mm, think big and go on all the walking tours, uh, enjoy all those conversations that happen at dinner, but more specifically after dinner, <laughs> you know, when you're having cocktails around the piazza, long conversations that happen over multiple meetings and sessions with uh, your cohort. I think that's very important there. And to probably research and do things that you may not do if you were back at home. I mean, we all go there with a list of things that we've had for five or 10 years. But while you get that, when you get there, new things pop up and you have to allow for that to happen because that's of the moment. So, you know, I think being open is very important. I think that's the most important thing about traveling at all is to be open. Thank you to Mark Robbins, Sanford Biggers, and the entire team at The Academy for making this episode happen. For more information about the institution and the Rome Prize, visit aarome.org. And you can see Sanford's show, Code Switch, at the California African American Museum until January 23rd. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.